You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In a small town called Bethsaida on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, there was a fisherman named Simon. We don't know much of anything about this man's past or why he would one day become famous. One day, another man, who would also go on to become known throughout the entire world, approached Simon and asked him to follow him. According to the story, Simon dropped his nets, left his family, and joined this man. Simon, who would take on the name Peter, which has its root in the word rock, became a close confidant for his leader, Jesus. After a few years, Jesus was crucified, and Peter spent the next few decades traveling writing, and sharing his story of Jesus to all who would listen. Along with his friend and missionary partner, Paul, this new sect of Judaism spread throughout the entire Roman world. We now know this to be called Christianity, but in the first century of the Common Era, it was often referred to as the way. Three major church centers would emerge, Alexandria, founded by Mark the Evangelist, Antioch, and Rome. The latter two were both founded by Peter, but Rome would emerge as the primary center of this new Christian church. We don't know for a fact that Peter was ever in Rome, but tradition holds that he was crucified under the reign of Emperor Nero around the year 66. Seen as the Bishop of Rome in a long line of bishops that would follow Peter, it really wasn't until the 11th century that this position would be recognized and cemented as the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. That was Matt Whitliffe, and my name is Chris Spangle, and we are here giving you the full backstory of our modern conversations, starting from Rome and moving forward. That was Matt talking about the foundation, essentially, of the Catholic Church and the Pope of Rome, which plays a really, a, Matt, a gravitational pull in Western civilization. And we felt that it was important to start with Paul and Peter and the really the most influential religion that will play into the Anglo-American tradition. Yeah, that's right. And uh, while we won't talk much about the church today in the rest of this episode, it is contemporaneous to the rest of the things that we'll be talking about today. When we cover the era from the emergence of the power of Julius Caesar around uh, 60 BCE and taking us all the way through about the year 180 of the Common Era as we like look at the height uh, of the Roman Empire. Yeah, I mean, Christianity started with just uh, that story, basically, and completely transformed the world through the next um, centuries and really continued to shape our world today. But let's start back with Caesar. We ended the last episode talking about the triumvirate and what was ahead with Cassius and Pompey and Julius Caesar. So let's start with Julius Caesar. He's probably... 
you know, we're talking about maybe the two most famous men in all of history, like Jesus and Julius Caesar. You don't, whether you know this or not, July is named after Julius Caesar and August is named after his predecessor, Augustus. And you are constantly thinking about Julius Caesar and his calendar, for instance, and you probably didn't even know it. But Julius Caesar, I would say, Matt, is like top three most famous humans to ever live along with Jesus. Oh, yeah. I mean, Julius Caesar is incredibly well-known, obviously. And through the centuries that follow, uh, you know, there's a, a serious Julius Caesar envy that, that <laughs> follows throughout the rest of, of Western Europe in terms of people trying to replicate uh, what he was able to do. And he, he's an incredibly unique man, right? I right. mean, he, he starts as largely a political animal. Uh, he's incredibly sharp. There's no doubt that his intelligence was was probably off the charts. Um, he turns out to be later, and and we're mostly you know we mostly know him for his military prowess. But he was an amazing you know obviously general. Uh, and then you add to that, he he's actually a, a prolific writer, <laughs> which uh, he's, he's, a lot of yeah yeah. Go ahead. yeah I mean he's why we know a lot about the Celts. The Celts, I mean, uh, his writing from his war journals uh, it, it were, were used in textbooks for people to learn Latin for, for literally a millennia uh, in terms of his crisp, clear writing and command of the language. So, I mean, I, I think about it today. It's like, imagine if, if George Washington had the genius of Thomas Edison and was able to also write about all that he did. It's just like a pretty mind-blowing combination that Caesar had. Yeah, I mean, he is uh, an interesting and uh, figure in history. So let's start with his beginnings. He comes from the Julii family. He's a nephew of Marius. Um, you know, he was uh, he, he served under Sulla. Did did he serve under what was his um, like base? Yeah, I believe it was a questorship under yeah. under Sulla. Um, but you know, obviously, with the the conflict and the fighting between Sulla and Marius, once you know uh, Sulla really came into power and and started to look to extinguish any remnants of of Marius's family, um, you know, he went into hiding. He le he left Rome. Uh, and once Sulla was was dead and uh, he felt it was going to be safe to come back, he gets captured by pirates, right? So <laughs> um, it, ultimately, he's able to, you know, pay a ransom and raise an army and and fight back the pirates. But like, you know, he, he's got an incredibly interesting story kind of from from day one, really. Yeah. So he in the middle of his Gallic Wars, he makes two attempts at invading Britain in 55 and 54 B.C. Uh, and it, Really, people wanted to command in this era armies to invade places like Gaul so they could take all of the wealth from it. And this really starts in the preceding decades where you, you have the generals, as we mentioned, who have an army beholden to them because they go into a place like Gaul, which is modern-day France and parts of Germany, and they go into Spain and Africa and Asia, and loot it basically and they they get to keep the wealth it is like civil asset forfeiture for uh <laughs> nobles and you know so he builds a lot of wealth and he uses his military adventures those those journals that he mentioned were public journals these were um pieces of information that he would leak out and he also used debt to become popular um kenneth pringle writes at public seminar the julii had had fallen on hard times 
and and it was very expensive to run for office as it is today in America. And he had to find ways to make a name for himself. So he borrowed to fund his election campaigns by staging Olympic-type games. And he doled out free grain and other typical expenses of the candidates and office holders. So Caesar found an almost endless wealth uh, partner, uh, a source of wealth, in Marcus Linicless... Marcus Crassus. Thank you. <laughs> Crassus, who uh, that's how I've just referred to him. Crassus, whose fortune and greed were legendary. Rome lacked anything like a modern fire department, so Crassus would dispatch his own private fire brigade to the site of a conflagration, but refused to extinguish it until the poor owner agreed to sell him the property. Only after the transaction was agreed to would Crassus send in the firefighter. So he ended up amassing a large amount of land and property, which was the foundation of wealth in ancient Rome, uh, and, and owned good chunks of Rome through this process. So in 61 BCE, Crassus came to Caesar's rescue with a loan of 830 talents, an immense sum amounting to about an eighth of Crassus's fortune, and he was the richest man in Rome, writes Caesar's biographer yeah. Christian Meyer. It might be worth around a half a billion dollars today. That's how much he put into all of these circuses. Now, the cr problem with Crassus, from Caesar's point of view, was that he expected to be repaid. And, and so to do that, Caesar had a bigger prize, which was the consulship. It was Rome's highest office, as we mentioned in the last one. And if Crassus supported Caesar, Caesar promised to cut taxes. So to guarantee victory in the 59 BCE election, Caesar brought a third member into his cabal, Pompeius Magnus, the great military hero of the day, a wealthy man because of those conquests himself. And he would bring votes, senatorial support, and even more wealth. And Pompey needed his recent military victories confirmed and land provided for his returning troops, so they didn't turn on him. So the this is how the first triumvirate was born, and it was sealed by Pompey's marriage to Caesar's daughter, Julia. Caesar was then elected, and he proceeded to ram through his entire legislative agenda with an unexpected ruthlessness. So you see the foundation of that first triumvirate is just seething Matt in corruption and driven by Julius Caesar's own need to pay back his debt yeah. or else. And it is uh, really a, a fascinating insight into the character of these three men. Absolutely. I mean, and these men don't really like each other at all <laughs> for the most part. Right. So it is a, it is a, an alliance of convenience and the, you know, the main thing that all three of them had in common was they just sought more. They wanted more power, more fame, more glory, more riches. I mean, like the, and, you know, while Crassus had all the money, he didn't have the same military prowess and recognition that, say, Pompey had. And Pompey didn't necessarily have all the wealth. And Caesar, want, Julius Caesar, wanted both of it, right? He, right. he was still kind of an emerging guy on the scene at this point in time, right? Um, Crassus was well-established amongst the leadership in Rome. Uh, Pompey was well-established at this point in time. So Caesar, you know, Julius Caesar is a little bit of a, a new player on the scene. He had held a handful of public offices throughout the preceding decade, um, just kind of slowly climbing up the ladder, uh, trying to establish himself within uh, within the elites of, of the the Roman society. Um, but, you know, he, he wanted to get out like many of the others to command a military, uh, command a force. And so, you know, part of what was allowed as, as he wrapped up his consulship was 
giving him this uh, imperium, they called it, right? The command of a military and, uh, you know, through a governorship over the regions that included Gaul, right? So through this, he ended up having uh, five legions under his command. And now he's got, he's got troops, he's got allies, and he's just itching, itching for a good fight and finds excuses to, um, to head into Gaul and uh, look to invade and, and conquer. Yeah. So he, you know, like you mentioned, climbed the ladder, you know, served as an elected military tribune, a first step. And this is a very common climbing of that ladder that everybody would participate in. It was very expensive to participate in. Um, He was elected a a quaestor for 69 BC and and went to serve his quaestor ship in Hispania. Uh, 65 BC was elected Karul Adel. And stage lavished game. I should let you pronounce things because I'm not good at pronouncing <laughs> things that aren't like Hoosier English. And stage lavished games that won him further attention and popular support. 69, 63 BC, excuse me, was Pontifex Maximus, a chief priest of the Roman state religion. 60 BC sought elections as consul for 59 BC. Um, you know, was ra- that election was wrapped in all kinds of uh, <laughs> accusations of corruption. Um, you know, Cato, who had an, a reputation for incorruptibility, even resorted to bribery to get rid of one of Caesar's opponents because he was trying to fight the uh, decline of the Roman state. Which brings us up to the triumvirate and the triumph. What is a triumph? Yeah, a triumph was a massive military victory parade, right? It was, it was, you know, it had long traditions in the Roman Republic going back into the, you know, the very early days in the sixth century before the Common Era, right? So the the pinnacle of um, glory in the Roman culture was to have a have a triumph, a big parade, really, uh, held in your name and on your behalf, and this was like uh, the the top honor, and everybody was always trying to seek ways to to gain a triumph. Now, so, what, what are some ways that the, like people people saw yeah. him as a threat, and they know that like they knew that he was a very dangerous person. Um, I guess yeah, he had those I, sharp elbows, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess the way to put it is, you see politicians like Bill Clinton or Donald Trump come to Washington D.C., and the people who are in the swamp immediately start trying to do things to limit their power or to limit their abilities. Did that happen to Julius Caesar? Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, the one way they tried to limit his power was giving him after, uh, you know, after his reign as, as counsel or his term as counsel was to put him into a much smaller position. Right. And so they were going to kind of give him some of the backwoods of, of Northern Italy and through some deals, deal making, uh, he's actually able to get a law passed that gives him that governorship over, a few territories, like I was saying, the, the one is the Cisalpine Gaul, which is northern Italy today, uh, Illyricium, Ilis- Il- which is uh, southeastern Europe, and then they ultimately end up adding Transalpine Gaul, which is southern France. Uh, these are all Roman territories, right? So north of this is where the barbarians are, the savages, right? The the Celtic people, the Germanic tribes, the Celtic tribes. So, um, you know, by seeking to put you know, Caesar, Julius Caesar outside of Rome and, and get him into uh, territories to oversee. They were trying to get, uh, get him out of, um, out of their backyards, but they end up uh, through the deal making that Julius Caesar is able to do. He, he also is out of their backyard and has legions of armies under his command. Yeah. And 
you want to be the the head of a province because you get to loot it. <laughs> and so it, the thing you have to keep in mind when studying Roman history is that anytime you see somebody in a position of power, there's usually some financial structure. You want to be the the, the governor of Africa because there's tremendous wealth with their grains, for instance. And Gaul had a lot of wealth, and he used this through his Gallic Wars to uh, win glory by expanding the territory of Rome, tried to go into Britain, as we mentioned. But who are some other people that are important in this story besides just Julius Caesar? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's move across the English Channel and, and look to the to the island for a moment. So we have Commius. Um, so Commius is actually king of one of these tribes the uh, on the island, and he sees a way to make a deal, right? Because he knows that Caesar is at his doorstep. Um, so, you know, C- Caesar has marched his armies north, going through Gaul, uh, has his eye on the coast, and Commius is sent as an envoy um, to you know, try to see if they can't make some deals and, and such. And, you know, at that point, Caesar strikes a bargain with him. And now, now you're, you've got this kind of setup and Caesar has his, his client based in Britain, uh, right. As he's getting ready to invade. And so Caesar invades, right. And, and his first attempt in 55 BCE kind of doesn't go, you know, he, he, he's not successful. Um, there's then another attempt after uh, after the winter passes in 54 BCE, and this time he starts to make some headway and um, is able to you know get get uh, some territory in there in his second expedition. But now a new leader has emerged uh, out of the various British tribes named Castellavanius, um, and he is you know ultimately they're trying to fight back Caesar and this massive army of Romans that has come across with, you know, all of their weapons and technology advances. Yeah. And didn't, and again, I would say uh, there's a great podcast called what's the one that you recommended to me? The British history podcast, British history podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And and he really covers in depth this invasion and how afraid the soldiers were of crossing the channel and they get hit by a massive storm, which wipes out a lot of boats and soldiers, which happened frequently. I mean, you're moving troops, hundreds of thousands of troops sometimes and boats. And if you get hit with a bad storm, then those people drown and, and they're gone, but they're they're They managed to, you know, they're landing around Dover and they manage to fight off the Romans because they use chariots. They're great charioteers. And Caesar talks about how vicious and skilled the, the warriors in these lower tribes are, especially at horse riding and charioteering. So um, good on them (laughs) fighting, fighting back (laughs) against Julius Caesar. So, so, you know, Caesar makes some headway. Uh, Commius helps negotiate the surrender of Castlevanius. Um, but now back on in France, back in, in Gaul, uh, you know, it's not completely pacified and there are some revolts and uh, a new leader of the Gaulish people is starting to rally, uh, you know, all the various tribes and groups together. Because you got to remember, these are, uh, as we talked about last time, not the Gaul is not a kingdom at this point, right? Right. There are still all sorts of different tribes and groups and they don't necessarily all get along with each other. So it it makes it very easy for 
someone like Julius Caesar or any of the Roman generals, frankly, to kind of go through a lot of these territories and just run roughshod because they have a professional military fighting force at this point. They are a unified front and they're able to pit groups against each other and, uh, you know, take on one group at a time. So Caesar has to leave uh, the island of Britain and, and is not able to establish full control. He's got a little bit of a loyal client state in there through his uh, connection with Commius. But um, a, one of my favorite names in history now, Me uh, too. Yeah. It, it starts to starts to emerge and that's a uh, verse and of the Gaulish people. Right. So he is uh, somehow been able to convince the various tribes and groups of the Gauls to unite and rally and fight against Julius Caesar. And, you know, if you want to, learn more about uh, these battles that that kind of ensue in the Gallic Wars. I mean, I definitely highly recommend Dan, Dan Carlin's podcast, uh, in, in particular, the Celtic Holocaust, right, where he goes into a lot of detail of the things we talked about last week, a little bit about who are these Celtic people, but a lot of good time is spent around the battles between Vercingetorix and, and Julius Caesar. You know, it really does motivate people to band together to fight an enemy when you're trying to, like, basically genocide an entire group of people while enslaving them, selling them back to Rome for slave labor, stealing all of their things. It tends to really tick people off. Yeah. Um, so he, Caesar is in Gaul, fighting in Gaul, amassing troops, territory, wealth, and that is starting to make the the folks in the Senate nervous. They're a little nervous. They're yeah. getting nervous because you don't want, it's like the thing about being in Gaul is that you can just march. You have a, a land pass to Rome. If you want, you want somebody like Julius Caesar and his, uh, his anti-Senate army in a place like Africa or Greece or some place where it's hard to march and you have to bring everything via boat. Um, so Gaul is kind of the worst possible place for Caesar to be positioned. And so how does the Senate start to fight back? Yeah, well, first of all, Caesar wins, right? Uh, Vercingetorix surrenders. And um, now Caesar starts heading back to Rome, you know, ready for his triumph, ready for his fame and glory. But the Senate strips him of his command, right? And so, you know, under Roman law, as long as you are holding holding a consulship or a proconsulship or various other titles of a magistrate, you cannot be convicted of any crime, right? Um, but Caesar knows that as soon as he has his title stripped from him, that his political enemies are going to find you know find reasons to have him arrested and probably killed. So Caesar marches his army up uh, to famously to the, the Rubicon River, uh, which is, you know, forms a boundary. And um, now it's time for that life or death, life or death decision. Will he stay and uh, with his army on the other side of the Rubicon, will he cross peacefully and, you know, put himself up to the, the fates and see, see what happens or will he, proverbially roll the dice and cross the Rubicon with his army. And we all know what happens next. Yeah, he invades and there is a civil war with Pompey who is representing the Senate and fighting for the true Republic. While Caesar's also fighting for the true Republic and both sides are fighting to restore the Republic and make sure that everything is just safe. And then eventually have uh, Brutus and Cassius and they're fighting for the, the true Republic. And everybody's just very concerned with 
in reality, they just want to win so they can have all the power. But the rhetoric through this period is all about fighting the traitors and restoring the Republic. Um, now, he ends up winning against Pompey and destroys his forces, and Caesar is declared dictator for life. It's kind of a jump. Yeah, it, right. Yeah, his his now the Senate is filled with yes man for C, for Caesar, and uh, he is as you said dictator for life. And and there is opposition, right? Uh, Cato is still around. Uh, Cicero is still around. Um, but they, they don't have, I mean, they're not military guys right now, right. you know, to have the power in Rome, you've got to have the money and you've got to have the swords. <laughs> yeah. You have and, somebody and, like Cicero who basically was the gold standard for Latin. One of the most famous lawyers. He was the Johnny Cochran of his day. Like if you got, uh, you got in trouble, you called Cicero and he would, uh, for a very handsome fee, defend you very influential on our understanding of the law. And Cicero is the person that we know the most about in classical history because 96 letters, there's, was it 96 or 900? There's some crazy amount of documentation. Cicero's letters, Cicero's journals, his written texts managed to survive history. So we know a tremendous amount about Cicero, which is why you've probably heard his name every once in a while. But he was a great lawyer. But his wealth, he was wealthy, but his wealth was that of a person who had become wealthy within Rome versus right. these men who had become wealthy in all of these territories with massive armies. So their opposition is very tepid and uh, really they have to align themselves with people like Pompey or later Mark Antony or Octavian or Julius Caesar. And you find the nobility starting to... Um, pick sides and then when they lose they get slaughtered and caesar part of his success is that when he comes back after beating pompey is he doesn't do that he does arrest cicero but he doesn't he doesn't do what sulla and marius did where he used political violence to slaughter his opposition and that is one of the reasons that he um he, he maintained a lot of good face with the public because he built stability instead of being um oppressive against even the nobles who a lot of your plebeians worked for the nobles, right? That's where a lot of yeah. their jobs came from. So he, he was very popular in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, uh, all good things come to an end, right? If you want to call that a good thing. And, and famously, you know, he is assassinated and then a second triumvirate, uh, emerges mostly of, of Caesar loyalists, uh, Mark Antony, as we've, we've mentioned, uh, Caesar's nephew, Octavian, and then Lepidus, who everybody forgets, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, Antony has Cicero executed. Um, and, and then ultimately, guess what we have? We have another civil war, right? The second triumvirate breaks down. Uh, Octavian and, and Antony go at it. And ultimately, Octavian emerges as, um, you know, the victor. And he, he kind of um, self-proclaims that, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no more special than the rest of you. And, and, you know, establishes the name Princeps, you know, the first among uh, the people and uh, takes on the title Augustus and it de facto establishing now for good the Roman Empire with, with all, all semblance of the Republic gone. Although he does, you know, the, the Senate may, remains, praetors and consulships, all these things remain, uh, but it is now, there's no, it, it is now the empire at this point. Yeah, the influence and power is all monopolized under the, the, the imperial dictator, essentially. And you, you, Augustus played it smart. He ruled for 41 years, 
And he used a tremendous amount of propaganda, like coinage was the main form of propaganda for the emperors moving forward, and called himself the father of the nation, and he was just the first amongst the citizens and lived in a very um, austere house for a Roman dictator and didn't uh, and put forth a lot of reforms like Caesar, like Sulla, like like the guy, the Gracchi brothers, that played to the the plebeian class, the lower classes, and did a lot to ingratiate himself to the mob. And he, he this allowed him to consolidate power. And if you didn't have Augustus's steady hand and intelligence, you wouldn't have had probably uh, the the beginning of a lot of peace through yeah. the Roman Empire. Uh, and so he's a very uh, interesting figure to learn more about. Um, so now we should we should talk a little bit, jump back to Britain, right? And talk yeah. about the conquest of Britain uh, as that is kind of our, our lodestar through this series. What's going on in Britain at this time? Yeah, so I mean, Britain is is trying to continue on, and and they are not formally part of the uh, of the Roman jurisdiction at this point. They're kind of on the on the edges, and and uh, but you know, there's a settling period that happens, and you know, we go from Octavian, who's who's established this credibility, who's established the empire, a, a degree of uh, normalcy, if you will. There's no more civil wars, <laughs> at least for a period of time. Uh, you go through emperors Tiberius and Caligula. We've all heard of Caligula. And the next emperor is Claudius. And Claudius has an interesting past, and he's really out to prove himself. It, it's likely that he had some sort of um, deformity or something. Um, and he is named emperor next, and he wants to make a name for himself by proving that he's he's worthy and deserving this um, of the title. And one of the things he does is he puts a site on Britain. And so it, it is now time to reattempt to take the island. And so Claudius, uh, a, a military is is led to to England to the island. And they, of course, run into opposition. And, and now we famously have uh, an uprising led by a lady named Boudicca, and there's the, the Boudican War. So, Chris, talk to us about uh, that uprising and the battle there. Yeah, I don't know how there hasn't been a movie like uh, made about Boudicca like there was about William Wallace and Braveheart because her story is just so fascinating. She is the wife of a tribal king, a tribal chief, and the Romans to, you know, when, when we talk about history and we talk about Claudius invades Britain and establishes a long-term foothold on the island, like that's very neutral language. What they're really doing is they're coming in and killing, destroying, stealing, raping. And they come in and uh, in a battle kill Boudicca's husband and uh, take her hostage. And Roman soldiers rape her daughters in front of her. Well, this just infuriates her, and she starts organizing the tribes of southern southeast Britain, and they form a large, large contingent and chase the Romans out, by and large. Uh, and it is one of the most interesting stories in, in history. Like, I would totally recommend just going to Wikipedia and reading about the Boudican Wars and Boudicca herself. She is a an inspiring freedom fighter and an inspiring person. Um, there is a great podcast called The Ancients, and they did two great episodes 
on Boudica that really go into her backstory that I highly recommend. Uh, and and I think that, that the person that is t in the interview is saying the birth of the Roman Republic, it, it, it comes about because of the rape of Lucretia, who is a noble woman and is and is taken advantage of by uh, a, a foreign power that is established itself as the king of Britain or the king of Rome, I should say. And this outrages the people in Rome so much that they end the, the monarchy and form the Republic. And they make the parallel of at the end of the Roman Republic, you have a similar story in Boudicca who exemplifies the same level of outrage at the Roman uh, empire that comes in and treads on her. So really recommend you look into Boudicca. She's just a fascinating person. Um, so, you know, the, there is a felt impact in the early days on the population in the daily life during the conquest. Um, but as eventually they establish cities and they establish Roman political rule uh, they establish a trade economy, defense, and your average life starts to improve in Britain because yeah. of the Roman Empire, because now you have trading routes open. You have, um, instead of warring, feuding clans, you now have some established central law and uh, a military that it has established order there. And so over the next 400 years, 500 years, you have a... I wouldn't say it's a, a, a peaceful time. If you're a Druid, your entire religion was exterminated. Right. But eventually it it uh, settles in Britain. And let's talk a little bit about Hadrian's Wall because this is like the most famous like piece. Um, why don't you bring us up yeah. to the period of Hadrian's Wall? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, after... After Claudius, there's, you know, Nero comes next. And, you know, I think most people have heard of Nero and, and that he's a little bit crazy, <laughs> right? And and uh, there's the fire and such. And, and over the next couple of decades, it's it's rocky for the empire again. Uh, but ultimately, a the, the last of this kind of uh, run of challenging emperors is Domitian. And he's assassinated through a plot amongst the court officials. And Nerva is established as the emperor. And he, he's considered to be the first of what our history refers to as the five good emperors, right? So there's this now period of time, you may have heard of the phrase Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. This is that era uh, where we go from the five good emperors in the next, you know, roughly century. So Nerva is the first of those um, his claim to fame, if you will, was there was actually a peaceful transition of power, right? Following him. And he had no uh, no descendants, right? So there was a little bit of a question mark as to who would be next, and and so that next emperor ends up being Trajan. Uh, you know, he is known for massive public works programs and really working on reshaping the infrastructure and uh, you know a lot of the construction that happened. I mean, still some of it still remains today in Rome. Uh, so uh, and then following Trajan is Hadrian. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Hadrian Wall and that and such here in a second. But, you know, Hadrian is known for he got out of Rome and and went across the empire and he really tried to establish himself as a, a visible presence, 
um, showing that, you know, he kind of quote unquote cared about uh, the people all throughout the empire. Um, he would bring his imperial retune of specialists and administrators. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on military preparedness and discipline and, you know, really focused on, um, I'd say, bringing the strength, if you will, of um the center of the empire out to the periphery of the empire. And that is, you know, part of what led to the building of the wall uh, on the Island of, of Britain. And then uh, he's followed by Antonius Pius, the fourth of the five good emperors, you know, effective administrator, uh, leads to a large surplus in the treasury, uh, working on access to water, lots of, again, good public works and, and infrastructure. And then finally, Marcus Aurelius, who I think many people have heard of, He's the fifth of the good emperors. I think a lot of people remember him more for his meditations the, and, and stoic philosophy, but he was actually one of the, the emperors and, and a pretty good one uh, as history looks back. Now, by the time of Marcus Aurelius, there are military conflicts beginning to emerge on all sorts of peripheries of the empire. Luckily, you know, the, the works by Hadrian have allowed for um, good defense on the edges, but, you know, this is kind of that period of time where the Roman empire is really at its height. Yeah, it's called the Pax Romana. You may remember that from high school. Uh, you have a functioning state, and you have little conflict. And really, you you have conflict, right? Okay, you just don't have civil war. So the Romans aren't fighting each other. That's why it's called the Pax Romana. But you have the Hadrian's Wall built because the, the tribes in the north, the Scots, are trying to invade into England, into Roman Britain. So there's a reason that the wall is built and the Antonine wall is built up higher uh, and that eventually gets uh, blocked. But you, you have at the edges of, so I guess the way to put it is like, you know, we all, all know why Rome fell, right? The barbarians invaded. The barbarians were always testing the, the limits uh, and the outer bands of the Roman empire it's the ones that wouldn't buy into the Roman system, I should say. Yeah, but, and you know, go ahead, it, it just on. the state eventually after these after the Pax Romana weakened so much that they could no longer fight off the Gauls, the Huns, the you know the Visigoths. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things you know I've read that Hadrian was seeking to accomplish this is you know there's not a great natural boundary or border necessarily on on the island of Britain to basically be like you know north of here is not us, south of here is us, and so the wall intended to do that in 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 partially in recognition that like okay we're done here right yeah. we're we're not going to go try to conquer the entire island. Um, you know, similar things are along the continent and, and out east. There, there were natural boundaries or where they weren't. Hadrian sought to basically put, in, put a pause or an end to some of the expansion because the ability to maintain all that infrastructure and, and keep everything running, it's, it's incredibly expensive, right? And so part of the purpose of Hadrian's Wall was to basically say, like, Rome is not going to go any further than this. Well, let's end it there. We will talk about the weakening of the empire in the third century. We'll cover uh, AD 180 to 425 in the next episode and talk about Diocletian and Constantine and Rome leaving Britain and all the consequences of that. And we thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us here on the History of Modern Politics. If you want to get emails, show notes, video of these episodes, I mean, you can't imagine how handsome Matt and I are. 
Um, so go check that out and reading list too at thehistoryofmodernpolitics.com and support the show by joining there. Thank you so much, and we will see you next episode.